Hi, everybody, and welcome to Life TK, the podcast where we talk to women writers, editors, and journalists in their 30s, 40s, 50s, and beyond about the jobs they did when they were in their 20s. My name's Amanda Woitis, and I'm your host. I'm excited because I have a great interview for you today with one of my favorite writers, Emily Gould. You might remember Emily from when she was on staff at Gawker, which was every magazine professional source for media gossip in the early aughts. Gawker is no more, but it's remembered for its irreverent tone. It could be hilarious, exacting, even a little bitchy. Sometimes it did investigative journalism, like when it published a video of the mayor of Toronto smoking crack. That was after Emily's time, but still. For magazine people, though, getting to read something someone was writing about us, it was like, well, the aforementioned crack. Emily, who has been described by various places as the new female voice of her generation, was one of Gawker's most popular writers, but I came to really love her for what she wrote after she left the site, and those are her books. Her first is a collection of essays called And the Heart Says Whatever, which is largely about her early adulthood in New York City. Highly recommend. It deals with all the issues that accompany finding yourself in this city. I want to read you this quick excerpt, which I feel is pretty applicable to professional life in your 20s. Emily writes, Like many people, I had come to New York City with this idea that I was somehow extraordinary. The important part wasn't extraordinary, it was somehow. I wasn't quite sure what kind of renown it was exactly that I was destined for. I just knew that I was really good at something, or that I could be, if I could just figure out what. Emily's other book is a work of fiction called Friendship, about two best friends who are newly 30 and trying to break out of the rut that is their 20s, figuring out careers, relationships, etc. Very life TK. The two friends are Amy and Bev. Amy has a media job she's unsatisfied with, and Bev quit an MFA program and is temping. The story, on a large scale, is about the ups and downs of female friendships, but Emily's portrayal of their career aspirations was very refreshing to me. I also highly recommend. Further, Emily has achieved every book lover's dream. Not only has she written books, but she also launched her own press with her friend Ruth Curry. Emily Books started out by sending subscribers an ebook by a woman every month through its online bookstore, and now it publishes two original books by women per year. You can go to emilybooks.com to check it out. But today we're talking to Emily about what life was like in her 20s. And spoiler alert, Saturn returned. Dude, astrology is real. It, it so is. The Saturn returns thing. Like, it's cheesy. Oh, shall we dive in, faithful listeners? Let's go find out what Emily was up to in her 20s. Book 
Uh, it's one of those like, books about reading, so fans of reading. Yeah. <laughs> and from there, I actually, while I was working there, a friend of mine who actually also works at the same company and I published YA novel together that was sort of, you know, I, I, I'm proud of it in a way, but it's definitely not like the artistic work of my soul or something. Um, it was called yeah. Education, definitely no longer in print. Okay, um, so you've actually written and, three books. Well, I don't really, I think that counts as like maybe point two five. Okay. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like I, I, it's definitely not not a book, you know, but yeah. it was, um, it was almost, uh, like, it, it definitely taught me a lot about what the publishing process is like from the other perspective. Like, so I, I worked as an editorial assistant and then as an assistant editor, acquiring editing books myself. And then I worked on a book myself. And then I felt like I knew everything I wanted to know about publishing because I was, you know, 25. And I also thought that I knew a lot of publishing gossip. So I started anonymously writing a gossip column about the publishing industry for Golfer with, with Alex Fogg's idea. So basically the entire thing, and by the entire thing I mean my entire career, is like his fault. Like I lay it on his doorstep. <laughs> every, everything that has happened to me since then, good and bad, is completely his responsibility. And then they were looking for a new editor at Golfer after this column left, um, and I auditioned for it and I got the job and I was like it was sort of like that moment in have you seen the jerk the Steve Martin movie uh I think I have yeah do you remember the moment where he's like things are gonna start happening to me now. oh yeah yep <laughs> yeah. but that's like um, I have to tell myself that every day just to get out of bed I feel like I'm in that <laughs> Like, I don't even believe it, but I'm just channeling my inner Steve Martin just to make it. I, like, definitely I have also been there, but, like, it was one of those rare instances of, in life where you're telling yourself that, and also it, it's actually kind of true. Yeah. <laughs> um, like, things things really accelerated after that. I was only at Gawker for a year, but so much happened over the course of that year, both to me and also to and just like in our culture, I feel like I'm actually drinking tea out of a mug right now that says Brittany survived 2007, you can handle today. And, <laughs> like, yeah, 2007. So Brittany and I both survived 2007. That time period was everyone was reading Gawker. It was just everywhere. Yeah, I don't, I don't even, I think that the media culture is so atomized now that it's almost like nothing like that could ever happen again. No. I mean, I had people coming up to me on the street and, like, telling me about their opinions and also about, like, you know, things that they knew about from their job working in a magazine. I mean, also people cared about media gossip. Like, yeah. one of the reasons that gossip no longer exists is that, like, media gossip still exists, but, like, no one cares. Everyone just, like, back channels it each other in like Twitter DMs and like Slack. Yeah. Um, People get their news from like Snapchat now. It's crazy. You know, in, in some like really sad, low penny moments, I'm quite kind of tough for it. But yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so so yeah, and then, uh, and then my career kind of hit a wall. I mean, 
had this enormous peak that had a lot of notoriety come with it. And also a lot of uh, really gendered abuse and criticism. And I don't use the word lightly. I mean, what I encountered was like, it was like psychological abuse, like systematic. What happened to me was really not okay for any number of reasons. Just glossing over that really quickly. And then I wrote In the Heart Sets Whatever. That book came out. It didn't set the world on fire. I was just kind of floundering. And when I, I, that, and that was in my late 20s, I, which was always a time that I, I thought that things would be like really, I would be really hitting my stride and coming together for me. And that's not what ended up happening at all. I mean, my, my late 20s and the first like couple of years of my 30s as I sort of struggled to write friendship and to get Emily's book started with Ruth Curry, my best friend, like, I just, I felt like I had no idea what I was doing. I really, really had uh, next to no money, and I was tempting, <laughs> like, I had a lot of very random jobs. You can't see my face right now, but a eureka moment is happening. I love that Emily talked about the myth of hitting your stride when you're in your late 20s. I also thought I would have it together by the time I got to this point in my life, and that's clearly not the case, hence this project. Here's my experience. As you go through your career in your 20s, you learn what you like about various jobs, but you also learn what you don't like. And not only does it completely change the idea of what you thought you wanted to do with your life, but also, as you get older and you're shaped by different experiences, it becomes harder to change people's perceptions of your ambitions and skills. Basically, if you get to 28 and you decide you want to go in another direction, it's much more difficult than when you're 22. So as I've started to wrap up my 20s, I'm trying to re-figure out what I want, which is hard, and how to persuade people to give it to me, which is tougher. Listeners who are in your early 20s, take heart that at least if you feel like you don't know what you want to do, all career options are still open to you. And it was was kind of like everything that I had done up until that point in my life and in my career sort of felt like it had no uh, relevance to whatever I would do next. Like, Mm -hmm. I had been kind of thinking that I was, like, depositing money, not money, like, not literal money, but I had sort of been, like, depositing some form of currency into some sort of bank, and then uh, then realized way way belatedly that that currency was kind of devalued and worthless, and now I would have to figure out something completely different to do. I mean, that was the process, that was what the process of writing a novel was like for me. I was like, oh, I have to teach myself how to do this thing that actually has nothing to do with anything that I've ever, like, tried to do before. Yeah, and then I did it. (laughs) And I guess that kind of brings us up to now. Anyway, so that's my, sorry to monologue for so long, but that was was pretty much (laughs) No, I loved it. 20s in a nutshell. I would say, like, the worst part was definitely, like, 28 to 31, I would say, for me. So, like, Saturn return yeah. is real. Oh, yeah. So how did you get through that period? I'm sort of in the floundering stage. Pretty much the only thing that has helped is having friends to go to for encouragement and, like, workshop things. Did you yeah. have that? Yeah, totally. That was the only thing that yeah. helped, actually. <laughs> At some point, like, pretty early in my writing friendship, I showed the first, like, 70 or so pages of it. Maybe not even that much. 
maybe like the first 50 pages of it to my boyfriend, who's now my husband. And he was like, you know, I'm not going to be a good reader for this. He had actually been really helpful to me with editing and the heart says whatever. Because he's a really good editor of essays. He's like, he co-founded in plus one. He's like really good at essays himself. Yeah. Essays, totally bad. And my like complete mess of a proto novel. He was like, oh, I, I don't really know what to do with this. And it's also like a little too close to like you and our lives. And I just don't want to read it. Yeah. And it was like totally fair. What should I do? And he, unlike me, got an MFA. And he was, and he was in a writing group. And he was like, well, you need to form a writing group. You need to like rub some people into being in a writing group with you. And so I did. And that writing group still is together. We meet less frequently now. I think like at the height of our writing groupness, we were meeting once a week, which is crazy. That's um, a lot. And now we meet probably like once, once a month, like ideally twice a month. It's like the best. It's the best. It's the best thing. I've gotten so much help from it. I like. I love reading the work of the other people in it too. And we both. And we don't really like workshop the way that you do in a class. I mean, a lot of it is just like you know we like eat a lot of cheese, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and like and like drink wine and gossip. It's like a book club except for instead of reading books, you read each other's like books in progress. That's great. I love that. Yeah, I I, I recommend it to everyone. I really do. You know, do, do whatever it takes to find those people who are going to be like your readers. Yeah. Even if it means you have to go to grad school. That's a lot to commit to. <laughs> Start with like the friends and cheese and wine. questions that I sort of toss around in my brain a lot and also do internet searches on I guess like how do you know when it's time to move on when do you know that it's time to lean in I take my job expertise with a grain of salt because I have had you know <laughs> I, I, I have had like a bunch of different gigs um, yeah. but I wouldn't say that I've had a ton of jobs. I do I do think so that like with any with anything that you're getting paid to do, you should stay doing it for as long as you are learning something from it. And if you're not learning anything from it anymore, it's time to do something else. The learning something aspect of work is what makes it possible to like get out of bed. I mean basically with jobs, either there has to be someone who is like there in the office who you would conceivably like hang out with outside the office or like you know want to have sex with <laughs> or you have to be learning something and if none of those factors are there then it's a bad job like it's like no matter how much money you're making no matter how like no matter what is like the you know carrot that's being dangled that's like keeping you in it like if none of those things are there then like your day-to-day experience that it's just gonna suck and you're gonna wake up every morning being like oh do you feel like looking back on your 20s, is there a piece of advice that you wish you had had back then or like something you wish you had known at that time? Oh, God, tons of stuff. I, one, one of the things that I think I, that I remember thinking a lot, especially when I was much, I was much younger and like sort of, 
you know, just graduating from college and, and kind of really confused about how the world works and, like, what my what my place in it would be. I was always trying to hedge my bets. I was always sort of thinking, like, okay, I'm going to try to do this, and if it doesn't work out, I'll have this thing to fall back on and then this other thing to fall back on. Like, if no one lets me do the thing that I actually want to do, it'll be okay because I'll still have, you know, X, Y, and Z. That doesn't make, that actually doesn't make any sense. I feel like I wasted a lot of time and energy over the years on these, like, sort of plan B things, you know, I, that I don't even remember now. Obviously, you have to make money to live. I think I think a lot, a lot of the time I was scared, and not like irrationally scared. I mean, I you know, but I, but I think at a certain point you have to really check in with yourself, think about what you want to achieve in general in life, and then just try to do it and try to make as few compromises about it as possible. Remember what I said earlier about how I'm trying to figure out how to make people give me what I want? Well, I take it back. Because what Emily said about committing to the career you want and just going for it is spot on. One of the biggest lessons I've learned in my 20s is don't wait for anyone's permission to do what you want because it's never going to be granted. You just got to decide and go for it. And remember the excerpt I read earlier from And the Heart Says Whatever? In the same graph, Emily talks about the idea of free-floating ambition, which is sort of applicable here if we're talking about backup plans. She says that when you have it, you're vulnerable because if anyone points you in anything that seems like a direction, that's where you'll go. If you're just starting your career, that's a great sentence to remember. I mean, my friend, my best friend Ruth, said in an interview recently, and I know this is sort of like an internet meme, but that she like <laughs> really tries to um, have the confidence of a mediocre white man. Yeah, that's so true. Last year, I sort of committed to myself that I wasn't going to type emails that started with like, just making sure or like, sorry to bother you because I read on the internet that men don't do that. And then I sort of adopted the mentality of like, okay, how would a white man do this? It's super depressing, but it's super helpful. I mean, avoiding apologizing in general is probably when it's really necessary to apologize. But it's almost never necessary to apologize via email. Like, if you, like, if you really owe someone an apology, then, like, a, an email apology is going to be, like, kind of a bullshit cop-out anyway. So. so true. But you know those work emails that you have to send, and the purpose of them is to ask someone to do something? Just, like, just do the thing. Yeah. yeah. Why is that so hard, though? Well, it's a, it's a tricky balance to strike. I also am in the position of trying to get people to do things that I want them to do. And, you know, and at this point, because I am, I'm an editor, like, you know, my, my natural tendency is obviously to um, be people pleaser and try to get everyone to like me. But that's, it's, it's so, it's, it becomes more complicated when you realize that, like, different approaches just work for different people. Like, like some people you have to be kind of addicted to them to get what you want from them. And some people really, you really do get better results if you are, are sweeter to them. So yeah, just, just to learn how to manipulate people more efficiently. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> We're not sacrificing, you know, your, like, true inner self and your soul. 
When I send work emails, I sometimes wonder how a man would write the same email. Luckily, science has an answer. In 2015, a group of Yahoo Labs researchers conducted a huge quantitative study on email, looking at 16 billion emails from 2 million users, and they did find a difference in the way that men and women email, but it's surprisingly almost insignificant. They found that men send shorter emails than women, but only slightly. The median length of a woman's email is 30 words. For men, it's 24 So I guess if we're strictly looking at the data, the next time you email, cut six words, and then, I don't know, you're good to go? I also found this interesting Medium post by Nicole Halberg called Working While Female, which links to a Twitter thread that describes what happened when Nicole and a male coworker of hers switched email signatures for a week. So Nicole's clients thought she was a guy, and the guy's clients thought he was a woman. I recommend reading it. It's interesting, it's infuriating, and I'm not going to spoil it further for you. Do you feel like when you were working in your 20s, you were getting sufficient management training? I read a lot of things on the internet that say that women aren't really receiving management coaching or mentoring in that way, and that like years down the road, there's going to be this weird management crisis. I think in everyone. I'm pretty sure that that's men and women. I had what I know to be a really anomalous experience because I started my career by being this really fabulous, really powerful, but also really benevolent, wonderful boss's assistant. I mean, don't get me wrong, I was still, I still worked very, very hard for him, and I was still totally scared of him. Like, I can't watch The Devil Wears Prada without crying. Oh. (laughs) But it was such a great experience in terms of, I mean, I, I learned so much from him about, like, how to be in charge of yourself and other people. And so, and some of it was, like, really conscious. Like, he was really trying to mentor me. And some of it was just, like, me being so close and working so closely with him that I, like, couldn't help but dissimulating some of, you know, the behaviors that, he, that were working for him. And I always tell people who are, you know, just graduating from college that if they're not totally sure what role they want to be in, you know, in whatever industry they're trying to be in, just, like, find someone who is doing great work and be their assistant. Even if they're big to you, like, you'll still learn a lot from them. Like, being someone's assistant is fantastic. Like, you know, I mean, it, <laughs> it, it, it gives you great material, like, however you want to use that material. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's great that you got that experience so early in your career, though, because it feels like people who have that get, as opposed to people who have, like, horrible first jobs, it just feels like they're set up for success sooner. Yeah, I mean, I mean most jobs are horrible. The mistake a lot of people make is to, is to, you know, realize that a lot of jobs are horrible and then be like, well, I'll just get that stuff. I just, like, I'll go straight from college or grad school to just, like, being a full-time freelancer and I won't, like, ever learn what it's like to be part of a larger thing. I think even if you work somewhere really dysfunctional and your job is really crappy, like, you'll inevitably still learn a lot about just, like, how to be a person in the world. Yeah, and you'll learn about the person who you don't want to be, I think is also a valuable experience. I mean, sometimes that's all you learn, but yeah. it's still really worthwhile. So I feel like we talked about some of your advice would be, like, fully committing to the person or the career that you want to have. Do you have any other advice that you wish you had known in your 20s? I mean, it's, it's easy for me to, like, have a lot of regrets now with hindsight. I mean, there, there's stuff 
eggs just couldn't have reasonably been expected to know. But I will say that I, I really, I really, really wish that I had even like a base, a very basic understanding of how how money works. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I would have actually done anything differently. If I, if I, if I had understood how money works, I probably wouldn't have written books. Because, because writing books is a terrible way to make money, for starters. Yeah. It's a lot yeah. of time. But I, but I just wish that I had managed to... Well, I guess, like, when I when I was first starting Emily's books, I wish that we had had sort of different conversations about, like, our business plan. I don't know. On the other hand, trying a lot of things that didn't work is how we ended up where where we are and who knows whether that would have happened any other way so oh dude I don't know <laughs> now that I have a child and I'm and I'm sort of tethered to and I'm teaching and I'm sort of like tethered to my you know day-to-day in a totally new way I just wish I had taken a lot more of the kind of assignments that you have to travel for I wish I spent less time trying to figure out how to you know write things that only required me to like around and like heavily introspect and I wish that I tried to get more assignments that required me to like report from Bali or something. I don't know. My whole thing is no regrets. My whole thing is no regrets too, except anytime I say that I automatically start thinking about every dumb thing I've ever said dating back to kindergarten. I'm willing to bet that Emily is way way better than I am at the whole no regrets thing. I want to thank Emily Gould for being such a great interview and volunteering her time. Thanks, Emily. Something we can all learn from her is her realization that she needed to stop wasting time with plan Bs, Cs, and sometimes, for some of us, Ds. After I interviewed her, I realized that I had been thinking of my day job as a plan A and this project as plan B, and I need a plan C that details how I can reverse this thinking. Please read Emily's books and The Heart Says Whatever and Friendship and go to Emily Books to check out other amazing books by amazing women. And follow Emily on Twitter. Her handle is at Emily Gould. Also, please go to lifetk.com and sign up for my newsletter to get a roundup of things I think you might like to read. If I can't have a writing group or a book club, at least I can have a newsletter club. All right, time to say goodbye. Thanks for listening. See you later.